Welcome to Off the Wall, a podcast aimed at helping you answer the questions, what is the point of my wealth, and what steps can I take to make that vision a reality? Your host, David Armstrong, co-founder of Monument Wealth Management, and Jessica Gibbs, director of private wealth design at Monument, will tap into their over 25 years of combined experience in wealth management to help you answer these challenging but important questions. Interested in learning more? Connect with us on Instagram at Monument Wealth and follow along at MonumentWealthManagement.com. Now, here are your hosts, Dave and Jessica. Welcome, everybody, to our next episode of Off the Wall. I'm here with my co-host and business partner, Jessica Gibbs. And Hey, everyone. We are super excited because today we are welcoming behavioral finance expert, Dr. Daniel Crosby. Yes, Daniel is Chief Behavioral Officer at Orion. He has over 10 years of experience in the financial services industry, and he uses that knowledge that he has in psychology and also as one of the foremost experts in applied behavioral science to study investor and market psychology. He has published a number of best-selling books. Dave and I definitely suggest checking them out after this episode if you want to do a deeper dive into what Daniel talks about today. But with that, welcome Daniel to the podcast. Thanks to both of you. It's great to be here. Awesome. So, I mean, let's just dive in. I think it can sometimes feel like with investing that things are out of your hands. So either in a, in a broad sense of, you know, how the markets or the economy is acting or reacting. You know, for example, we're recording this the morning of February. Third, And the S&P is down this morning in large part because Meta, formerly Facebook, their stock is down over 20% due to weak earnings. So kind of that's a sense in the broad sense that feels like it's out of your hands. And then, you know, maybe in a narrow sense too of you've hired an advisor to select investments for you. But your work is very focused on how an investor's behavior actually drives investment returns. And you talk about this in your book, The Laws of Wealth. You lay out what you see as 10 rules of how investors can manage their behavior. And Dave and I thought it was really interesting that your very first rule is you control what matters most. So can you talk more about this? Yeah, there's definitely method to that madness. When I was putting together sort of my 10 commandments of these laws of wealth, it was important to me that that one go first. Because when you talk to most people, or when most people talk to me, I guess, and and know that I work in the field, and they'll ask me things like, you know, what's the president going to do? What's the Fed going to do? What's going to happen in Ukraine? Like, it's all of these things that are externalities. It's all of these things that are, you know, A, completely beyond knowing, right? Like, nobody knows what the Fed's going to do, or the president's going to do, or Putin's going to do, right? And then B, even if you did know, you couldn't do anything about it. And then C, you never know how the market will react to that thing. I mean, who would have guessed that, you know, COVID would bring us this extraordinary market? Even if you had known, hey, this global pandemic is coming, right, which you couldn't have, you would have then had to guess the market's reaction to that, which was, you know, I think by all accounts, quite unexpected that the market did as well as it did in the face of effectively a global shutdown. And so it's impossible to forecast these events. They're out of our control. And if we focus on them, we get this learned helplessness is sort of the psychological term for it, right? We feel hopeless and helpless in the face of this this ambiguity, this powerlessness. But the fact is all of the research shows that the things that matter most, 
to help you cross your financial finish line and reach your goals are all within your power. It's boring stuff like maximizing your human capital, right? Like always be learning and growing and educating yourself and getting better and better jobs. Like that's dramatically important. That's within your power. It's things like saving regularly. It's things like taking the appropriate level of risk, managing your fees. All of these things are highly, highly predictive of whether or not you reach your long-term goals and they're all within your power. So the psychological term for this is locus of control. And I just wanted to give people this internal locus of control to say that, look, all the big stuff, all the stuff that matters is within you. It's within your power. It's knowable. It's controllable. And it's doable. Leave the rest you know, to the universe. But you can control the controllable. And if you can do that, you've done a lot and you're going to make it. Yeah, that's amazing. We try to keep preaching that over and over again. And it's like you said, nobody pays attention to when we're talking about the boring stuff. <laughs> it's just not exciting, right? But it's so true. And it's a great lead into asking you a question about, you know, all the bad news that we see out there. So, you know, investors are constantly bombarded with bad news and speculation about impending bad news. And because I think, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but our brains are wired to think from a reactive or a reflective space. People have this natural tendency to just imagine the worst outcomes, especially if they've seen them previously in their lives. So for example, if you lived through 2001 and 2002, or you lived through 2008 and 2009, it's super easy to imagine the worst outcome because you're like, man, I have been here before. So what are the things that a good investor have to understand what what do they have to understand to protect themselves from themselves well you know you need to understand your wiring and you're exactly right so there's this profound asymmetry or imbalance in the way that we think about risk and we know from the psychological literature that we're about two and a half times as as scared or upset about a loss as we are happy about a comparably sized gain And, you know, in different parts of our lives, we see this even more dramatically. Like there's research on marriages that shows that marriages where there's like an equal number of positive and negative interactions are doomed. Like that's a terrible marriage. If you have one sort of dust up for every one compliment or one sort of loving interaction, that's perceived as a terrible marriage because the bad stuff is so much stickier. So you remember the fights so much longer than you remember the compliments. And so the research suggests that you actually need at least five positive interactions with with a spouse or a partner for every negative interaction if you're going to make it. And I mean, investing is largely the same way. The tech bubbles, the great financial crisis looms a lot larger in our mind than the 2021, where the market was up, whatever, 28% in kind of like a quiet, forgettable way, we had this massive return. That's just not as sticky. So you have to know that you're wired for negativity. You You have to understand this about yourself. And you have to understand the market's ability to do big things, even in the face of negativity. You know, Warren Buffett has this great quote about the 20th century, the 20th century was a nightmare. I mean, we had You know, we had multiple world wars, we had a global pandemic, we had, you know, Korea, Vietnam, like, I mean, we just had war after war after war after war, the depression, right? The Spanish flu, like 
all of these things. It was a bloody, sick, horrible century. (laughs) And yet the market, you know, compounded at 10% a year over that time in the face of all of those things. So there's a book that I love about investing called Triumph of the Optimists. And it really encapsulates how I I think about investing. Being an investor is, I think, ultimately a long-term bullish view on humanity, right? It's a view that we as a human race are going to get smarter, better, faster, stronger. It's going to be imperfect. There's going to be ups and downs, but sort of the arc of human innovation and inventions going to bend in a positive way. And that's what being a long-term investor is. And we have every reason to believe that that will continue to be the case, even in the face of lots more bad stuff. First of all, thank you for your compliment and telling me that I was right. Jessica, I want you to log that and uh, remember. It's noted. (laughs) That's one of the five compliments I think I'm going to need today. But, you know, in the context of, you know, corrections in bear markets, Daniel, I think you're so right because I really sense, and I'm not saying this in a bad way, I'm just noting it, that there's just this indifference over the fact that the market went up almost 30% last year. It's just sort of like, eh. Okay, awesome. That's really great. But man, the market goes down 10% in 30 days in January and people are just flipping, right? And there's your three to one ratio. Kind of making that up, but you know what I mean? And I think that the big takeaway there is that you've got to understand that these things happen, corrections happen, bear markets happen. There's all the statistics out there about how often they happen, how likely they're to happen. But the reality of it is, they happen, they're going to happen, and it's more about how you react when those corrections and bear markets are happening. And I think even more importantly, from our perspective, what you've done to prepare yourself before you even get there. In other words, I call it running your emotional fire drill. So when the market's up in December of 2021, we're asking people, hey, if the market was to pull back 20, 30% from right where we are right now, how would that make you feel? And, and if it if you think you'd feel really bad, maybe you should de-risk your portfolio a little bit. So, Daniel, is there any research, actually, just thinking about that risk tolerance question? Because I always find when markets are up, people are like, yeah, my risk to- I can handle this risk tolerance. And then if markets are down, that's when they really see the actual like physical dollar amount, you know, when their account value goes down. And then their risk tolerance may not be as rosy. Is there any research around that of when you're measuring risk tolerance in the market and how that affects someone's risk tolerance? Yeah, so there's actually three facets to risk that are, I think, instructive here, right? So there's risk capacity, which is how much risk you can afford to take, which is going to be effectively how wealthy are you and how old are you, you know, and and how big are your goals, right? So these are sort of determine your capacity to take risk. There's your risk tolerance, which is your long-term, your long-term attitudes around making risk-reward trade-offs. These are pretty static. These like are pretty unchanging over a lifetime. Then you've got the third piece, which is the psychological piece, which is your risk composure, which is how emotional are you? Effectively, how likely is a short-term emotional reaction going to change your perception of your long-term willingness to take risk? So if you look at something like 2020, right? Like March of 2020, the, the initial sort of COVID crash, And you have clients calling you saying, I'm scared, get me out, put me in cash, right? If you ask them, you know, is this a smart thing? Like, should you be doing this? Is this prudent? Most of them are going to say, 
No, you know, because that's their risk tolerance, right? They still know, yes, I should stay the course. Yes, I should do these things. But their risk composure might be such that that emotional, the emotional salience of that scary moment is sort of overriding that long-term goal. So, you know, at Orion, we measure all three of these things. We believe that you really got to measure, you know, how much risk can someone afford to take? What are their long-term attitudes toward risk? But then sort of how emotionally composed are they? How emotionally able are they to handle the ups and downs? Because with someone with low risk composure, and I mean, I put myself absolutely in that category, like some, you know, someone with low risk composure, it's tough for them, like even if they know better. And so that's an important variable to consider. When you talk about risk tolerance and, and goals, when we sit down with people and we ask them, what are your goals? It's a pretty common answer to hear, I want to grow my money at a rate of return that is higher than the market. You know, you hear all these kind of things. And they are all variants of somebody just saying, I just want more. I just want more money. And when we hear that, we immediately have like a red flag that raises because we're like, okay, how do you quantify more? How do you do that? And when you ask somebody, what does that look like? If your goal is more, what does that look like? How do you know when you've achieved success? You really start to uncover that people are a lot more risk averse than they think they are. And your point about your ability to absorb risk, I'm going to call it different, but you know, if you're really wealthy and you're self-insured against a 30% because it doesn't, let's just say you're a billionaire, right? And the market goes down 30%. Okay, that's a big dollar loss. But I would I would imagine from a standard of living perspective, it probably doesn't even move the needle. Yet those people are not very risk averse. They're risk takers, I think, you know, because they have so much money, they, they can absorb that loss. You could make an argument that that person should be 100% in cash because who cares? I'm not advocating that. I'm just saying from a mental perspective, like it's, it's kind of interesting to see how people look at risk at different levels of wealth. We find that people who, who are really trying to grow their wealth and are really trying to go for a goal of a standard retirement and they're not that wealthy, they want to take the risk to grow the portfolio, but they're scared to death of losing a single dollar because they don't really have a lot of wealth yet. Yeah, there's a lot of things at play, right? So one of them is what shrinks like me call the affect heuristic, which just is a fancy way of saying that emotion colors the way that you view the world, right? So like if you're in a positive emotional state, you tend not to see any risk anywhere and you tend to be focused on upside. If you're in a negative emotional state, you tend to see risk everywhere and you tend to have this sort of downside risk first mentality. And so, I mean, that just, you know, waxes and wanes over someone's lifetime. And then we've also got this recency bias. It's a very human tendency to project the immediate moment into the future indefinitely, right? Like you saw this during the pandemic, right? Like in March, it's just like the sky is falling. Things are never going to be right again. And there were all these articles about like, humankind will never give a handshake again. Like we're never going to give a hug again and no one's ever going to work in an office again. And it's just so short-sighted. It just assumes that like whatever is happening right now is going to happen forever. And one of the chapters in the laws of wealth is called excess is never permanent. And in there, I say that the truest phrase in investing is this too shall pass, right? So like if you have a horrible March of 2020 type year, like this too shall pass, like there will be better times than this and likely soon. 
that's true on the flip side as well. You get a couple of 30% years in a row, and you know, this too shall also pass. They're not all going to be 30% up years. And so keeping that sort of mindset of if things are really bad, they're likely to get better. And if things are really good, they're likely to not stay this way forever, I think is a really healthy way to view markets and, and sort of manage your own expectations. Yeah, I would even say that the data will show you that the probability of things getting better is heavily skewed away from things are going to get much worse. I mean, if you just look at the mark, you were just talking about the 20th century being so horrible, but you look at a graph of the S&P 500 over the last 50 years, and it's up and to the right. You zoom in on any one particular six-month period, it could look totally different. But as we were getting ready to do this podcast, Jessica and I were talking about some of the chapters of the book. And Jessica, you zoned in on or, or cued in on the part where Daniel developed the four rules to follow to mitigate an investor's behavioral role in managing their money. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of where we were naturally going. It's like, okay, so let's just say, okay, you're starting to self-recognize, okay, I have recency bias. You're looking at risk in the three ways that you laid out. And you're you're conscious now of, I want to mitigate my role, my behavior's role in, you know, influencing how my money is managed or how I'm investing. And so I was interested that you developed these four rules to follow. You call them the four C's. It's consistency, clarity, courageousness, and conviction. So I was hoping you could give us an example of what each of these rules look like in practice. Yeah, so we'll start with consistency. So the rule with with consistency is that rules beat discretion. And by discretion, I'm just sort of simply referring to like, in the moment, seat of the pants decision making. So what I did for the book was I looked at over 200 studies, basically a meta analysis, a study of all the studies on human decision making versus following simple rules. So you know, you look at something like, oh, I'm going to get in and out of the market kind of depending on what I'm seeing on TV versus I'm just going to stay in and I'm going to dollar cost average in every month. We even looked at stuff like studies on prison recidivism, right? So they would look at things like, do we get a panel of PhDs to try and decide whether this person needs to be let out of jail? Or do we just look at two variables? You know, do we look at what are they in for and how did they act in jail? And looking at two variables is 400% more effective than convening a group of PhDs like myself to try and like, you know, whatever, look into the soul of someone and and determine, you know, whether or not they're reformed. And you see this across context. You see this everywhere from medical decision making to criminology to psychology to specifically markets. You see that simple rules beat human judgment again and again and again. They do it at a lower cost and they do it with less headache, right? Like just set your rules on autopilot and then go live your life. So I'm just a big believer from the data that rules beat discretion. And so that's what consistency is all about. So the next one I'll talk about is clarity. There's tens of thousands of data points, right? That the Fed and and other groups report about the U.S. economy each year and, you know, Shocker, they're not all important. (laughs) So when you regress enough variables against each other, you can find correlations that that shouldn't be there. 
Like there's a correlation I talk about. There's a Super Bowl correlation, whether the AFC or the NFC wins the Super Bowl, has like a 70% prediction of what the market does next. There's like a 96% correlation between the production of butter in Bangladesh and like S&P price movements over the last 50 years. So there's all these goofy things. And, and we as a human family are sort of wired to see patterns, like sort of the same way that we see faces in the clouds or see Snoopy in the clouds or whatever. We're sort of wired to see connections where there are none. But what I found is that you just really need to focus on, on a couple of things, right? And so for me, it's things like, you know, fees, it's things like the price you pay for a stock. It's things like risk, the quality of the stock, the momentum of the stock. But when you're looking to make financial decisions, what we find is that people who try and focus on too many things actually ironically do worse than people who just focus on one or two sort of overarching constructs. So there's lots of ways to win in investing. But you have to be consistent, like you almost have to have a religion, right? The, you know, whether your religion is momentum based investing or value based investing or, you know, low cost indexing, all of these things work, but you've just got to, you've got to focus on it. You've got to have that clarity and you got to stick with it in good times and bad. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you talk about fees because it's obviously such a, a popular topic in the industry. And, and I always look at it from the perspective of what are you getting for what you're what you're paying? And I often think about if you go into Whole Foods or any sort of grocery store that has the fish out on the ice, you know, underneath the cabinet, and you, you look at it and there's four pieces of salmon there. I'm not going to naturally pick the most expensive piece of salmon just by looking at it, but I'll pay the guy behind the counter to tell me which one's freshest, right? So the fee thing is is a really interesting topic, and it's definitely something that people need to consider when they are making decisions because not only is there the explicit cost of fees, but there's the implicit cost of fees. And and I'll say that, you know, the drag that fees take also have to be connected to your self-imposed fees that you get charged for bad behavioral decisions like buying and selling out of the market trying to time. Because that's also a fee. Well, you know, there, I think there's there's fees that are worth paying and there's fees that not, you know, that'll, that'll sort of lead us to our next C, which is conviction. When it comes to asset management fees or product fees, you know, Morningstar did a study a few years ago and they found that fees were the thing that was most predictive of fund success because you just take away this drag, right? So lower cost, all else being equal, right? Lower cost, lower cost product did better. And yet we have this industry where 70 plus percent of products that bill themselves as being active are in fact sort of closet benchmarks. And so with conviction, I basically say, look, you know, be convicted, have this faith, have this, this sort of religion that you believe in. If you want to be passive, that's a great way to go. Like, you know, manage your fees and go all, all in on that. If you want to be active, that can work too. But you have to do it in a way that has real conviction, has a real opinion. So, you know, I did some research recently that looked at how you would have done in value versus growth versus the average investor. So since 1970, if you had invested $10,000 in a value fund, you'd have like $2 million now. If you invested $10,000 in a growth fund, you'd have like $1.7 million 
if you had had the gotten the returns that the average investor got, you would have just over $400,000 because of their tendency to jump in and out of the market. So what we find again and again is the fees that are worth paying are the advisor fees. You know, we find research out of Canada finds that that people who have a long-term relationship with an advisor had 2.97 times the wealth of those who didn't have an advisor, even when they normalized their salary in different socioeconomic variables across 50 different factors. So people making the same salary, the one who works with an advisor for 15 years has three times the money of the one who doesn't. So, you know, save your money where you can on product fees, but the advisory fees are where it's at because that's worth paying because that person is going to be a decisional guide and a behavioral coach to you and keep you from making these bad decisions. That's interesting. I was just going to ask you why, and it's, it really comes down to behavioral coaching. I mean, what's crazy is if an advisor can save you from two or three bad decisions over an investment lifetime, that pays for itself many times over. You know, you think about someone who wanted to bail in March of 2020 or March of 2009, and an advisor kept them in their seat. I mean, that person will never pay that advisor back. Like their fee, you know, their fee will never approach the value that was created by that advisor keeping them invested. So there's fees that are worth paying and there's fees that are not. So how about the the fourth C, courageousness? So courageousness is really about what Howard Marks, the great investor, calls the perversity of risk. So courageousness is just this idea that we sense the most risk when there is actually the least risk and vice versa. Like basically, you're going to want to do all the wrong things at all the wrong times, right? When the market is full speed ahead, you're going to want to take excessive risk and you shouldn't. And when the market is actually quite attractively valued because it's dipped, you're going to want to get out and you shouldn't. So courageousness means basically doing what's right, even in the face of emotional greed and fear, just having the courage and the fortitude to do the right thing, even when your heart's telling you to do something else, you know, because we are quite literally wired backwards. I mean, we want to take excessive risk when things are actually very risky and we want to flee for safety when things are quite attractive. So, I mean, almost every impulse you have is incorrect, which is why investing is, is so difficult. That's interesting. So let me kind of tie two of those things together with a hypothetical scenario and then ask you how somebody facing this should be framing it. If an investor feels like they have a lot of conviction that the market is going to go down, because we hear this a lot, which is the market just had a 30% run, inflation's high, I know the market's going to go down. So that's the conviction, right? They They have serious conviction. But that's not a great way to apply conviction. What do you tell somebody who is absolutely convinced that their gut is right and try to convince them to frame it differently and consider the fact that they're, they don't really know if they're right or wrong. Yeah. So I think I would point them to the research. So the research on people who actively trade, so, you know, actively jump in and out of the market, like, like you're talking about, The most exhaustive study ever done on this was done in Taiwan, and it found that one 
in every 360 active market participants added value through their moves. Okay, so think about that. One in 360. And so you have to ask yourself, you know, am I the one? Probably not, (laughs) right? We have research from 19 different countries that shows that the more actively someone gets in and out of the market, the worse they do with the, the most active participants underperforming the least active participants by 4.1% a year. And I mean, 4.1% a year doesn't sound like a big deal. You compound 4% a year over a 30-year investing lifetime, you will half your money. You know, you will, you'll cut your money in half or worse. And so the other thing that I would say is intuition, right? We learn to trust our intuition because sometimes it works. And our intuition works in a very specific subset of times. For intuition to work, it needs to be a decision that you, A, make repeatedly, and B, get immediate feedback on, right? So like if I eat whatever, a bad piece of meat, it's immediately gross, I immediately get sick, I like, okay, I'm never going to do that again, right? The market doesn't work that way. You know, first of all, you only get I mean, how many truly catastrophic markets do you get in a lifetime? Two or three, probably, you know, so so someone kind of like trying to time a big decline in the market, right? That doesn't come around every day. You don't have this experience every day. And then the feedback's not immediate. You know, Jessica talked about Facebook stock today. If we were to buy Facebook stock today, when would we know if that was a good decision or not? I mean, I don't know, like... At 10 years from now, yeah. 15 years from now, 10 minutes from now? A year now? from now, like, yeah. Yeah, like, I mean, is it is it a bad decision because it goes down another 10% in the next week? Like, maybe, maybe not. Like, the timeframes are so, are so subjective in the markets. The conditions aren't met for your gut to work. You need repeated exposure to a decision with immediate, clear feedback. Neither of those conditions are met. And so your gut is just not a good a good guide to markets, and the evidence backs that up. I'm just going to say right now, every single person listening to this podcast needs to rewind three minutes and listen to that again, because it's it's just it's such a fantastic observation, and it's so true. The whole thing about the immediate feedback, we get this a lot recently. Hey, great, your portfolio did well and, and everything. But, you know, I bought crypto and I made a 400% return. So maybe I'm better at this than you are. And your data on the one out of the 300 and some odd people that, that are right, I would bring it back to your one of your four Cs, which is, okay, great, consistency. Like, are you going to be the one person that gets it right again out of 300? Or did you just get lucky? If you got lucky, great, take your chips off the table and walk away. Fantastic. Congratulations. I can't remember which one of my books I, I write about this in, but I have this saying that like you can you can be right and still be a moron, you know. So I give I give I give the example Paul D. Podesta, like a front office baseball guy, gives the example of being out playing blackjack with his buddy, and his buddy's kind of drunk, and his buddy is showing like it was eighteen or nineteen. Okay, okay, we'll call it we'll call it eighteen, right? They're playing blackjack. His buddy's holding eighteen, and his buddy who's tipsy wants to hit. And De Podesta, who's a big, you know, numbers guy, is like, no, 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 no. Like, like, I'm not going to let you hit with, you know, showing 18. That's statistically dumb. And his friend insists his friend hits. And, you know, would you know it? His friend gets a three, right? The, the dealer turns a three. 
And the friend's like, I was right. I was right. I told you I was right. I knew it. And it's like, no, you were still stupid. Like, you know, what you did was still stupid regardless of the outcome, right? If you, if you jump in your car right now, don't wear your safety belt and drive 120 miles an hour to the grocery store and you don't die, you're still stupid, right? Like it was still a bad decision, even if the outcome was averted. And so the thing we have to do to be good investors is tilt probability in our favor. And what's tricky about this is, is you have to learn to be, you know, the house and not the gambler. If you look at Vegas, some of these card games have infinitesimally small advantages. You know, it's like 51-49 or, you know, 52-48 in favor of the house. But that, you know, that 2-3% delta is enough to keep a lot of lights on in Vegas and build a lot of big houses. And so by doing the things that we're, we're talking about today, you tilt the odds in your favor It's not a guarantee that on a short-term timeline, everything's going to go your way every time. It's not a guarantee that your dumb cousin who does something crazy, you know, betting on a meme stock isn't going to get rich doing that. But over time, when you tilt the odds in your favor by doing the things that we're talking about today, good things happen and you sleep better at night. Yeah, I feel like listening to this conversation, the big takeaways I'm hearing are keep it simple. Don't overcomplicate things. Get out of your own way. Stay focused on what your long-term goals are, not on what's happening in the headlines. I mean, I just love that that simplicity. I, I think with investing, there's everyone's got smart ideas. Everyone wants something new. What's your greatest new idea? And that's what I feel like I keep hearing from you. It's just like, don't overcomplicate it. Just keep with what's simple. Keep with what works. Focus on those core fundamentals that you mentioned, and you're going to succeed. Yeah. There's an elegance to simplicity, but people just don't have fun following it. So Daniel, Jessica and I have spent so much time talking about all the great sections of your book, but it, it kind of prompts the question of what is one of your favorite sections of the book, of any of your books? It's a great question and actually one I've never been asked before in all my podcasting. And it actually comes from my, my time as a therapist. So my PhD is actually in clinical psychology, even though I've spent my entire career in, in financial services. But, you know, I still spent thousands of hours in one-to-one therapeutic conversations with clients as part of the fulfillment of my, of my doctoral degree. And I saw something very consistently in people, and, and I came to call it emotional graying, which was people trying to play it so safe that they they became very unhappy. And I think it has implications for money too. So I'll read the quote from the book. It says, think about the most meaningful thing you've ever done. I would wager that it took a measure of risk, uncertainty, and hard work to achieve. In this, as with all risk, comes a valuable lesson. To strive for certainty is to doom oneself to mediocrity. Nothing is less safe than playing it safe, and nothing guarantees loss like trying to avoid it. Consider the person who remains unattached to avoid risking heartache and finds loneliness in the process, or the would-be entrepreneur who never makes the leap of faith and wastes a career working at jobs they hate, or the investor paralyzed by a fear of volatility that arrives at retirement with resources inadequate to meet their needs. Indeed, the irony of obsessive loss aversion is that our worst fears become realized in our attempts to manage them. So this is something that I saw all the time as a therapist is that, you know, someone was scared of having their heart broken and becoming lonely. So they wouldn't date or they would make themselves unavailable. 
And of course, that unavailability brings about loneliness, which is the thing you were scared about in the first place. You see this in, in investors. You know, people are scared that they won't have enough money for retirement. So they jump in and out of the market trying to anticipate every next correction. And then, yep, sure enough, they arrive at retirement with inadequate resources. So I think in life, as in markets, we have to embrace uncertainty and learn to live with, with sort of a modicum of risk. And doing so can enrich our lives in, in meaningful ways. I think that's the perfect place to wrap up. Thank you so much, Daniel, for joining us. This has been a great conversation. Definitely encourage you all to check out his books after this and read more about his thoughts. We'll put them in the show notes below with some links. We don't do the affiliate links, so we'll just go straight to the website. But I would also like to say thank you, Daniel, because I know how valuable your time is. I'd also like to thank Randy Lambert at Orion for setting this up for us. He's been such a great friend of ours, and we hold him and all of the Orion team in the highest regards. Such a fantastic company. If you're an advisor listening to this and you're considering Orion, boy, we have nothing but just the greatest things to say about him. And Daniel, must, you must be really happy working at such a great firm with such a collaborative team like that. It's a wonderful place. We got, you know, Brinker Capital, where I worked previously, got acquired by Orion sort of mid-pandemic. And it took me a long time to meet some of my colleagues, but even from a distance, they were wonderful people. And it's, it's been a great place to be. Well, thanks again so much for making time. This is such a great topic and fits in nicely with our whole philosophy on everything. And I'm sure this will be very popular. So again, on behalf of everybody here at Monument and the team that does all the editing for Off the Wall, we really appreciate your time. And thanks again for coming on. Thanks. Thanks, both of you. Hey, everybody, real quick, we forgot to mention Daniel has an incredible podcast as well. It's called Standard Deviations. You can find it on pretty much every major podcast platform. That is an incredible thing for everyone to check out in addition to his books. And then you can also follow him on social media. Dave, do you have where you can find him? I do. So it's Standard Deviations with an S. And then he's got a YouTube channel, which is Dr. Daniel Crosby, Dr. Daniel Crosby. And Instagram is the same, Dr. Daniel Crosby. And then Twitter is simply at Daniel Crosby. But he's pretty good on all that. And of course, he's on LinkedIn just under his full name. And that's it. Go check him out because he's great to follow. And he posts on LinkedIn all the time and the other sites as well. So check that out. 